Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 2nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, it's peak season for the West Nile virus in Mississippi. Find out about how and why you should protect yourself. They should have a very high index of suspicion for any flu-like illness that presents during the summer months. And they should consider West Nile virus for any unexplained neurological symptoms that also occur during the summer months. Groups are throwing their support behind the case to change the state flag. Why one organization has joined the fight. And hear from coast officials on what to do when shrimp, crabs, and other sea creatures wash up on shore. The phenomenon called a jubilee. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. As increased risks for West Nile virus continue through September, experts are urging Mississippians to protect themselves against mosquitoes. The state has lost its first resident to the West Nile virus. The State Department of Health is also reporting eight additional human cases in the last week. The state total is now 19 for 2017. The newly reported cases are in Forest, Grenada, Hines, Jones, Lincoln, Madison, Rankin, and Scott counties. Previously reported cases have occurred in Covington, Humphreys, LaFleur, and Perry counties. In 2016, Mississippi had 43 West Nile virus cases and two deaths. Arturo Lace is senior scientist for the Center for Neurosciences and Neurological Recovery at the Methodist Rehabilitation Center in Jackson. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware what he thinks Mississippians should know about West Nile virus. West Nile virus is considered an arthropod-borne virus. For short, it's arbovirus that entered the United States in 1999 in the New York City outbreak. Since that time, it has literally spread from the East Coast throughout the entire United States to the tip of the West Coast. There is no vaccine available uh, in humans, despite the development of an, a, a very effective vaccine for horses for the past 15 years. This is difficult for me to understand because there have been successful human vaccines against other viruses in the same family as West Nile. The cost of developing a new drug is often cited uh, between $800 million and $1.8 billion. And almost understandably, pharmaceutical companies may decide that mass vaccination programs are unlikely to be cost-effective because these infections tend to be relatively low incidence and very sporadic in nature. We can never tell when there's going to be a severe outbreak, and that that may occur one year, but the next year we may have only just a few hundred cases throughout the country. From the public perspective, the public has to be aware that this is a largely preventable disease. And so put on the mosquito repellent, empty the standing water, and wear long, loose clothes and and preferably light-colored clothes 
because mosquitoes tend to bite dark objects. When should people seek medical help? I think that uh, people will seek medical help when they develop the signs and symptoms of West Nile virus infection. And so when it appears like a summer flu, I would say most people will still seek medical attention. But in about half of reported cases, it persists and worsens and becomes either a meningitis, which is a very serious condition associated with inflammation of the linings around the brain and the spinal cord, or it can even worsen more than that and become an encephalitis. So if a person has a mosquito bite and they start seeing some of these symptoms, should they ask their doctor to do a West Nile test? Uh, Yes, they should. They really should, and they should be persuasive. How is West Nile virus treated? There is no vaccine, so treatment is supportive. Uh, If they come in with a respiratory distress, which can happen because the virus can attack the cells in the spinal cord that control the diaphragm, which controls breathing. If that happens, then that patient will be placed on mechanical ventilation. If the problem is dehydration because of nausea and vomiting, then the doctors are going to replenish the fluids with uh, uh, intravenous saline solution uh, and, and rehydration. But sometimes the virus also attacks the autonomic nervous system. And this is a system that is uh, responsible for controlling all automatic functions. And so several of my patients right now, their major residual symptom is that their gut has stopped working. And so this is also going to be treated by the GI gastrointestinal experts. But generally speaking, supportive care is is what prevents uh, these patients from worsening. How effective are area repellents like a bug repellent torch or lamps or the clip-ons that you can wear? In general, people need to put on the bug repellent, the mosquito repellent, and to buy one that has an EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, approval for the ingredient. So these ingredients include DEET, which is probably the most uh, common, but also picaridin and uh, oil of lemon eucalyptus. But there are also other ingredients that have been approved and registered by the EPA as mosquito repellents. And it, it will say that on the bottle. Dr. Arturo Lace, neurologist at the Methodist Rehabilitation Center. Thank you so much for speaking with me. You're very welcome. You have a good day. Jimmy Allgood is Director of Emergency Management for the City of Oxford. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware about the city's mosquito control program. Well, we have several different programs going within our mosquito control program. Number one, we put ordinances in place to try to break the life cycle of the mosquito by preventing breeding areas. So if we have detention or retention ponds that hold water for more than 48 hours, they have to submit to us a uh, mosquito control plan for that detention or retention pond and, and also a maintenance plan for that. Then we also we do our public education, you know, advising citizens when the highest peak times for mosquito activity are and how to protect themselves, such as, you know, long sleeve clothing, wearing DEET and, and using pesticide responsibility, but also in our community education, we advise, you know, go around your home and any standing water, make sure you dump it out flower pots, old tires, buckets, things like that, because it takes very little water for a mosquito to lay eggs and and for the eggs to breed in. And then we have our spraying program where we spray our public parks. We do a pre-dawn spraying 
once a week in the public parks. Uh, we don't spray neighborhoods. We, we, we just concentrate on the parks where there's going to be a lot of uh, activity and, and small children and everything to protect them. Is there a reason why you don't spray in neighborhoods? We have some people that want neighborhoods sprayed, but we have some people that don't want na- their neighborhoods sprayed. So we cannot control the spray once it leaves the, the applicator. So we, we are taking the approach that, you know, if you're a homeowner and you do not want your property sprayed, then it's going to be impossible for us to spray the property next to that and everything. So that's the reason we really push the public education as far as how to make a mosquito-free environment around your home, like dumping out the water, keeping the grass and shrubs and hedges trimmed like that. You know, don't give them a living environment. You mentioned talking to residents about peak hours. What are those hours? Well, it depends on the mosquitoes. So far, we've been lucky enough we don't have the Zika mosquito uh, that's been found in the state yet. And it's a daytime feeder where the, the, the West Nile mosquito is a, a pretty much dust till dawn feeder. It, it, it feeds mostly in the late afternoon, early evenings, and then in the early morning hours right before or right after sunrise. So, you know, that's times when, you know, people are getting off work, they're going to softball fields, they're going to outdoor activities after work and things like that. So so that's when you need to really protect yourself the most. And then early morning, you know, people exercising, runners getting out, going to the parks and walking the track and things like that. You know, so that's when you really want to emphasize on the protection. Why is it important to have these citywide mosquito prevention efforts? If you can reduce the mosquito population throughout the city, then you reduce the, the mosquito pool that our mosquito population here. And by us concentrating not only on one area of the city, but the entire city, hopefully we can reduce the mosquito pool for the entire city. So that by breaking the life cycle and the breeding and then controlling the environment where they can and cannot live, you know, is is an overall effort to reduce the overall city mosquito population, not just in one neighborhood or, or one area. How many parks is this that are getting sprayed? Right now, we do FNC Park, Pat Lamar Park, Avent Park, the Oxford Skate Park. And then uh, we do some limited spraying when no students are around. The, uh, uh, it's the old high school. It's actually the, the middle school now where the football field, the baseball field, and those areas are. Jimmy Allgood is the Director of Emergency Management and Homeland Security for the City of Oxford. Thank you so much for speaking with me. You're welcome. Peak West Nile season in Mississippi is July through September, although cases can occur at any time of the year. Coming up, state and national organizations are lending their support to a lawsuit seeking to remove the Confederate battle emblem from the state flag. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy, live blue. It's good to be blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Several organizations are throwing their support behind the lawsuit to bring down Mississippi's official banner. Attorney Carlos Moore, now a municipal judge in Clarksdale, is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to reverse a Fifth Circuit Court ruling that dismissed his lawsuit. Moore contends Mississippi's state flag with the Confederate battle emblem violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and has sanctioned hate speech. 
Two supporting reports called amicus briefs have been filed by members of the Congressional Black Caucus and the Mississippi Legislative Black Caucus, as well as by the Southern Poverty Law Center and Lambda Legal Defense. Jody Owens is managing attorney for the SPLC Mississippi office. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall what they consider the larger issue. This has been an issue that the Southern Poverty Law Center has been fighting for quite some time. Uh, this flag is a larger issue because it focuses so much on hate, bigotry, and the symbolic meaning of a desegregated South. So given the opportunity, the Southern Poverty Law Center decided that uh, we could use our this venue to express some things that may not have been expressed in the original briefing of the case and to make sure that we spelled out specifically not only the history of the flag, which is well known, but how we think the lower court erred in deciding that the plan did not have standing on the Equal Protection Clause. I don't want to put words in Mr. Moore's mouth, but we've heard from him on this case, and basically he's saying that the symbol on the flag is, as he puts it, a vestige of slavery, and that the fact that it is there oppresses him to the extent that he's entitled to legal relief. Does that sum it up accurately? Yes, but that legal relief is for the flag not to be flown. It's right. widely accepted and known that this flag uh, has a message of hate, exclusion, and inferiority to African Americans, such as Mr. Moore, who is a petitioner in this case. And flags are supposed to have a shared identity of common values, but this flag does not. And our amicus goes on to explain how Mr. Moore has a unique standing. He is in courthouses throughout the state of Mississippi, and per Mississippi Constitution, this flag is to be flown specifically at certain times, and it's forcing Mr. Moore and other African Americans and similarly situated individuals to go through this vestige of slavery. And if you look at our amicus very closely, we detail the harmful and psychological effects and physical effects and damages that can be caused by this flag. And it's well documented that African-Americans have higher rates of stress, higher rates of uh, strokes, heart attacks, and these very things that can be linked directly to how the flag itself has been decided and even held by courts to have that virtue of slavery before. There are several cases throughout the country where it's recognized that schools have the authority to say that Confederate flags cannot be flown or worn as part of the school dress code because of the historical effects that we're seeing now in kids. And one of the cases that Southern Private Law Center has been involved in over the last year is, of course, the massacre in South Carolina by Dylan Roof. And we all know the connection of the flag to Dylan Roof, how he was essentially brainwashed by what the flag stands for, that hate, that mentality that African Americans are inferior and they're doing something bad to this country. And one of the more interesting things I think that should be noted by amicus is that we highlight the conservative leaders in this country's position on this, Senator Rand Paul, Senator Lindsey Graham, former Governor Mitt Romney, all asking for the Confederate flag to be taken down, not to mention former Governor Nikki Haley taking the flag down from the South Carolina State House. Let me play the devil's advocate here because you uh, mentioned some statistics that we often cite in our stories here at MPB about the various health disparities among uh, impoverished African-Americans and others and how that contributes negatively to how they experience life. Are you saying that all of that is attributable to the presence of the state flag in public? Certainly not saying that it is the sole factor, but 
it's well documented by medical professionals throughout the country that it is a contributing factor. In fact, in this country in 1954, in the Board of Education, it was known that the psychological harm caused by racism is greater when it's sanctioned by law. So that's what's important in this instance that we want to highlight, that this flag is sanctioned by the state of Mississippi. But, but in that case, they were talking about a whole series of Jim Crow laws, not just a flag. Yeah, but what's unique is when we have this conversation, whether it's devil advocate or otherwise, we must take the conversation as a whole. The Confederate emblem, which is known largely as the largest symbol of Confederacy, is in the Mississippi flag. And it's undisputed, devil advocate or not, that that flag stood for, as Governor George Wallace highlighted, Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. We know what that means. And you're causing individuals to see it, to live under, to live under it every day, and to not think. And I can tell you, as a son of the South, as a black man, when I see that flag, I feel like that flag is a reminder of oppression. And I'm forced to see it every day throughout the state of Mississippi. It's symbolic of a time that we want to forget, but yet we're so proud of having, having it displayed so prominent. And it's the state flag. There are a segment of people that we hear from frequently who disagree with the idea that the flag itself is racist, and they say that it stands as a symbol of their family and their past and and not so much about specific racist feelings or pro-slavery feelings. Yeah, I think one of the things that deserves clarity in that conversation is that no one denies that the sons of Confederacy fought bravely for something they believed in. But as we've evolved as a country and a nation, that things they believed in which was slavery, we know now and widely accept that that was wrong. And if we can agree that it was wrong then, it does not do a disservice to their violent fighting for what they believe in to acknowledge the things they fought for was wrong. And as we look back where we are today, if we can agree that they did fight for slavery, which is undisputed, if we can agree that they did fight for segregation, which is undisputed, we can certainly acknowledge that those people who were segregated and those people who were enslaved and, those, and their ancestors can certainly reasonably be expected to not feel like that flag represents them and to be reminded of slavery and segregation. So what's the next steps as this suit progresses? What's the timeline that you're looking at? Well, we hope that the Supreme Court will acknowledge that there is a standing, there is a right, and there is an acknowledgement that racial discrimination is linked to reduce health, mental health, increased in stress and depression, which are the very things that Mr. Moore says that give them standing to file this lawsuit. And they will, in return, reverse the appellate court's decision in the Fifth Circuit and send this case back down to review. Jody Owens is with the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, here in Mississippi. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your uh, perspective with us today. Thank you for having me. In 2001, a statewide vote to change the flag failed. Supporters of the flag say it's about heritage, not hate. In a statement, Governor Phil Bryant says what the flag is or is not should be decided by Mississippi voters. Neither party will know if the case has been accepted until early October when the Supreme Court reconvenes. Coming up, is it a natural phenomena or a scary sign? Details on the Gulf Coast Jubilee. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It is almost time for those school buses to hit the road again. Along with the back-to-school clothes and supplies shopping comes the inevitable request for the latest tech devices. Today on Everyday Tech, we will discuss getting the most tech for your buck, protecting those investments, and ensuring safety in your digital learning. That's today at 10 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Officials with the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources have confirmed a jubilee in the Mississippi Sound due to weather conditions. During a jubilee, many people gather along the beach to collect the seafood that washes ashore. Typically, it is safe to eat. However, people still need to be cautious. On Wednesday and Thursday, several different species of fin fish, as well as shrimp, crabs, and eels were found from Gulfport to past Christiane Harbors. MDMR scientists found the main cause was low oxygen. There was no indication of a toxic algal bloom. The bloom would have made the food unsafe to eat. Matt Hill is director of MDMR's Fin Fish Bureau. He says collectors should wait until tests have been conducted to determine the cause of seafood onshore. He tells us how the Jubilee got its name. You see this a lot in Mobile Bay, and the people over there began calling it a Jubilee. It was a celebration. It's just a natural phenomenon that occurs. There's nothing that we can do about it. It is a mortality event. However, like I said, it's natural. So it was something that the people would enjoy. They would go down to the beach, and they would pick up the shrimp and the crabs, and there a lot of flounder and, and things like that. That's how it got its name, the Jubilee. You can pick up these fish and eat them? Absolutely. A lot of these, the seafood is not dead. It's gotten caught in a low oxygen environment, and it's basically it's stunned. A lot of them will survive if, when the event is over with. The event usually starts around midnight, and by sunup, it starts to dissipate, and some tidal movement, and, and the water starts to come back in. But a lot of these seafood that we're seeing, it's not dead. It's still alive. It's just in a stunned state. What's causing the low oxygen level? A lot of things got to happen. This is why we don't see it every year. But you got to have extremely warm water temperatures. So we have that. This week in particular, we had very little tidal movement, and we had very, very calm seas. So what happens is the tide starts to come in, and we had a very, very slight north wind, and it pushes the top layer of water in the shallows uh, up near the beach. It pushes that top layer back. So the fish get trapped in this low oxygen area, and there's no way for them to get back out. And basically, they're suffocating. There's just not enough oxygen in the water. But they're stunned, and they're easy to pick up. They're all at the surface trying to get the remaining oxygen in the water. Is there ever a situation where there might be toxins involved? Absolutely. And that's when you hear the term a lot, uh, red tide. This was not a red tide. This was what, there were no algal blooms involved in this. This was a classic jubilee. It was just uh, all these factors came together. However, there are times when algal blooms are involved. So you have these huge blooms out there, and when they begin to die off, they start to sink. And as they sink, they take all of the oxygen out of the water. Their mortality causes the low DO. So if you have this bloom that covers this huge area, it does the same thing. It stuns all the animals. There are what we call harmful algal blooms and non-harmful algal blooms, and that is why we're very cautious that first day we needed to take the water samples to make sure a bloom was not occurring. The event is over currently, uh, but we are taking water samples as a precaution just to see. But that's why we're very cautious in the beginning about calling it a Jubilee because once you say it's a Jubilee, then that's basically telling the people that the seafood is safe to eat, which it typically is safe to eat. However, you still have to prepare it, store it, and cook it properly. And if it has washed up on shore and it looks like it's been dead for a while, it's just best not to, to pick it up. How many shrimp it. and crabs and eels are we talking about? It's 
very hard for us to actually put a number, especially in pounds or just a number in total, because it, it was such a large event. I mean, it stretched from the old Broadwater Marina all the way to the west of Pash Christiane. But so, this is thousands as opposed to hundreds? Oh, yes, absolutely. You said that this doesn't happen every year. Do you remember when the last one was? This has happened the last three years. It seems like every year we have a very localized one, but we don't really report on those. But this one was a pretty major one. So for the last three years, we've had a significant jubilee, but we've had higher than normal water temperatures for the last three years also for an extended period of time. Matt Hill is the director of MDMR's FinFish Bureau. Matt, thanks so much. Thank you. Hill also reminds people they must have the proper licenses in order to possess the seafood. If you see any fish or creatures wash up, contact MDMR before consuming. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs at 9 o'clock, Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from Trustmark, featuring Trustmark Deposit Express, ATMs for business and personal banking. No deposit slips, no envelopes, no waiting. Most deposits made by 9 p.m. weekdays credited that day. Details at Trustmark.com, member FDIC.